This is Dean Mathis, the Director of Capital Ministries, Michigan. Today's study is entitled, God's Logic. We're going to be looking at the book of Isaiah, particularly Isaiah chapter 1. President Lyndon Baines Johnson was famous for using Isaiah 1.18, or at least a piece of it, as one of his favorite quotes. And it is this, Come now, let us reason together. And then he would stop right there. However, like many things people do with the Bible in their attempt to bend it to their purposes or justify their actions rather than let it adjust their thinking and behavior, he neglected to quote it in full context, which we're going to look at today because in this we have at the very beginning of the book of Isaiah a description of the problem and a very clear declaration of the solution to every problem that man faced then and to the problems that we faced now. Some of the most beautiful language in English literature is found in the great prophecy of Isaiah. Truly, he was a superb master of language. He was also a far-seeing prophet who recorded some remarkable prophecies centering on the coming of God's Messiah, both his first coming and his second coming. The 53rd chapter of Isaiah is such a clear picture of Christ that this book is often called the gospel according to Isaiah. God's plan of redemption and his work of redemption are central in Isaiah's prophecies. That's even suggested by the name of the prophet himself, Isaiah, which means literally Yahweh saves, God saves, the I am saves. The book of Isaiah, as a matter of fact, could be really considered a miniature Bible. There are 66 books in the Bible, and Isaiah has 66 chapters. The Bible is divided between the Old and the New Testaments, and Isaiah is a twofold book, has two divisions. The Old Testament has 39 books, and the first division of Isaiah has 39 chapters. The New Testament has 27 books, and the second half of Isaiah has 27 chapters. The opening chapter of the second division of Isaiah, chapter 40, declares the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. In the New Testament, likewise, the first figure introduced is John the Baptist, crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. The closing chapter of Isaiah deals with the creation of a new heavens and a new earth, just like the closing book of the Bible is the book of Revelation, which talks about a new heaven and a new earth. So, the great prophecy of Isaiah, this great, wonderful collection of Isaiah's visions which he received from God, captures not only the theme of all Scripture and its central focus on the Savior of mankind himself, but also reflects the divisions of the Bible itself. In fact, the very center of the Bible is found in Isaiah 53. Well, with that sort of historical note, we know that... Uh, Isaiah carried on his ministry as described in chapter 1 when he says the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That historical note lets us know that Isaiah carried on his ministry through the reign of four kings. He was, had access to the royal court. He was of the nobility. And Isaiah was put to death during the reign of the son of Hezekiah, Manasseh. Billy Graham calls Manasseh the wickedest man that ever lived. Manasseh was truly an evil king. 
So Isaiah lived during a time of great political unrest. Israel was surrounded by enemies. Israel and Judah were divided from each other, and both kingdoms faced terrible enemies and suffered attempts at conquest. Israel, the northern kingdom, fell to Assyria, and Judah, by the miracle of God, withstood that invasion from the Assyrian hordes. Later, after Isaiah's time, it would not withstand the invasion by Babylon. Israel was, during Isaiah's lifetime, surrounded by enemies and crisscrossed with invading armies. It was a time of threat, danger, and desolation. And so, God sends Isaiah to address the people as to the causes of this situation that they're in and why these things are happening and the solution he is offering them. He goes on to, in Isaiah chapter 1, he begins this way, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey, a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. And then he goes on to describe what comes as a result of when people turn away from God. And there seems to be today in our country an incredible conspiracy. It's prevalent in politics and and in education and in the media even, which is to keep God on the fringes of life, to never mention his name unless it's a cuss word or acknowledge his presence. Any effort to assert God into politics is met with tremendous resistance. People have deliberately and willfully turned their backs on the living God and do not like to acknowledge that he is any part in human affairs. Well, as the chapter unfolds, Isaiah describes the moral and horrific dilemma that the nation finds itself in. And it has come about because of their spiritual rebellion against God. Now, they are still going through some religious motions, but God says, you're not fooling me. You may be going through a lot of outward religious motions, but you're not really worshiping me. You're basically worshiping yourselves. And then in verse 16, he turns a corner in his warnings and says this, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. So that's where you start. That's where you and I start as human beings. The first thing we have to do is to be cleansed. Cleansed of what? Cleansed of our sin. Cleansed of our rebellion against God. Cleansed of turning our back on God. And when we do that, out of that come all of the problems and the injustices and the difficulties that our society faces. So he says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Now that immediately raises a question. Okay, how do we do that? How do we human beings come clean, so to speak? And then that's where the famous quote comes in of Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. And of course, that word Lord is capital L-O-R-D, which means it is the English translator's way of rendering the sacred covenant name of God, which literally means 
I am, probably pronounced Yahweh in Hebrew. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they will be like wool. God said, I can fix you to the point that you can be absolutely clean. Your sins can be bright blood red, and I can make you morally as clean and bright and white as snow. There's a process. There is a way in which we do this, and it says, if you will consent and obey. There's something we have to consent to, and then out of that, if we want to receive the full benefit of it in the here and now, we obey it. We obey this cleansing that God will bring to us. If you consent and obey, you'll eat the best of the land. But if you refuse this offer and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So you just have two options. There's an old-timey sermon. We laugh at this kind of stuff now, but it's really still true. There was an old-timey sermon that was entitled, Turn or Burn. And those are really the only options we've got. You either turn to God, that's called repentance, and faith, or you turn away from God, and that's called rebellion, as this verse points out. You refuse and rebel, and if you do that, you're going to be devoured. You're going to burn. You're going to, it's, you're going down. You and your country, you and your personal life, your whole thing, you're going down in flames. And we have to remember that it is God who will make us as white as snow. We can't do it ourselves. There's something we have to accept from him. Now, I want us to fast forward to the answer that God gives. And he describes it many times in many ways in the book of Isaiah. But it's over, found over in chapter 53. And it goes this way. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He was of no stately form or majesty that we would look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attractive to him. So in verses 1 and 2, God, once again in the book of Isaiah, introduces Messiah as we would recognize him in his first coming. When Jesus showed up the first time, the royal house of David had been descended into being literally peasants. His adopted father, Joseph, was a day laborer, a carpenter, a stonemason, really. And they were poor. They were extremely poor. And so there wasn't anything outstanding physically about Jesus. And he, he didn't have the trappings of royalty. Nor did he assert his divine authority and use the miracle power of the Holy Spirit that worked in and through him because Jesus was completely obedient and submissive to God, a sinless man. He didn't use that power to dazzle. He used the power to try and persuade and convince and to present to them the fact that God comes first in the form of grace. God comes to us at our level as one of us in the incarnate Son of God. But we didn't get it. Verse 3 said, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like one from whom men hide their face. He was despised and we did not esteem him. The very people who should have recognized him did, but then they said, that's not what we wanted. That's not what we were looking for. We were wanting this great conqueror to come and kick off our oppressors. 
and lead us to the promised land or, or establish the, the kingdom age. We didn't want this guy to come in and, first of all, address our sin. We don't need that. There's nothing wrong with us. And Jesus kept repeatedly saying, there is something wrong with you. Verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. So Jesus, as he prophesied, would happen. In fulfillment of this very passage, was rejected, was betrayed, was lied about, was indicted on false charges. Even his prosecutor, Pontius Pilate, declared him as innocent three times of the charges, but nevertheless, because of political pressure, and his own corruption, he turned Jesus over to be crucified. But what was going on is that Jesus was bearing our griefs and sorrows. The smiting of him was for our healing. Verse 5 says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. When we look at the passion of the Christ, when we look at what Jesus suffered in the Beating prior to crucifixion and all that went on, all of that was because that's what we deserve because of our sin. And yet Jesus took it upon himself, God took it upon himself in order to heal us, in order to make our scarlet sins as white as snow. Isaiah 53 verse 6 is the dead center of the Bible, or I should say the living center of the Bible. It says this, all of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord, the I Am, has caused the iniquity of his all to fall on him. There's the answer. This is God's answer. God's answer is this. Jesus has died for your sins. God has laid the iniquity of us all on him. But you have to choose to believe and to receive God's grace by faith. That's it. You don't rebel against that offer. You accept that offer. And when that happens you'll be cleansed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that was led to slaughter and like sheep that are silent before their shearers. He did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. That is, he was killed. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, he really died for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man, along with Nicodemus, stepped forward and claimed Jesus' body and gave him a rich man's burial. And this happened because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Jesus had done no sin whatsoever. But the Lord, the I Am, was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself a guilt offering. He did this because God himself wanted us to know how much he loved us. Jesus is our guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper at his hand. What this verse clearly teaches is that he will be resurrected from the dead. And as a result of his resurrection, there are going to be spiritual offspring. Jesus will live forever, and the good pleasure of the I Am will prosper in the hand of Jesus. As a result of the anguish of his soul, this is the Messiah, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, this is the Messiah, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, God says, I will allot him, that is the Messiah, a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors. 
In fact, the role of Jesus today right now is that of intercessor. We've studied this previously in the past. Well, we live in a time that people reject what God does in their lives. Ray Steadman, in a message on this very passage, talked about a friend of his who talked to an 80-year-old man in Idaho. He was trying to share with him his need for God's grace, his need to believe in Christ for salvation. The old man said, well, I've lived for 80 years without God. I don't think I need him now. Well, (laughs) what an incredible statement. It's amazing that anyone can breathe God's air, which man did not invent or produce, eat food that comes from a process that God, not man, set into being, enjoy beauty that no man has made, live by means of the sunshine of the provisions of life which come from the natural resources, which man had nothing to do with, and still declare that he's lived for 80 years without God. Every breath we take is by the mercy of God. Everything comes from his providing hand. But man ignores and turns his back on that and then goes on about saying that only man matters. This, my friend, is incredible blindness. But that's the problem that Isaiah, and actually really God, is dealing with here. We're a sinful nation, just like Israel, laden with iniquity. And yet God comes along and says, wait a minute, let's stop right here. Let's reason together. Let's think logically together about this. Says the I am, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. If you consent and obey, you'll eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, let's be sure that we quote the whole verse. Let's don't just do like our former esteemed president and just quote part of it. Yeah, come now and reason together. We need to know that the thing we're to think clearly about is how to be free of our sin. Many times in talking to people about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And we come to a point where I ask them a question, are you ready to receive this gift of forgiveness based upon the finished work of Christ? Are you ready for that? I've had in more than one occasion, it's, it's, it's almost a routine response. It's, well, you know, I want to make sure I can hold out. No, folks, you, you don't hold out. God holds on to you if you'll turn to him and trust him, and believe in him. And then sometimes they'll say, well, I need to clean up my act. No, 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 friend. You can't clean up your act. God cleans you up, and then your act will follow as a clean act. That's how it works. So, as we think about our life today, let's hear the words of the Lord. Come now. Let's reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, may God richly bless you. 